So the question is, if you don't have any input to those visual brain areas, what happens to those areas? What we've worked out is that um, in those people, the visual system generally responds to auditory information. Hi there, I'm Alex von Klemperer and this is CortexCast, the podcast bringing you discussions with some of the most interesting researchers in neuroscience today. We'll be exploring the full spectrum of neuroscience, from cognitive behavioral research to cutting-edge molecular and transgenic techniques. We also want to explore how these researchers think about the brain and what really drives them to ask the questions that they do. If you're interested in Cortex, then this is the cast for you. Cortexcast is the official podcast of the Cortex Club, an Oxford University student-run society which connects Oxford students and researchers with world-leading neuroscientists. Researchers are provided a forum ranging from small, intense debates to large discussion sessions, usually followed by drinks with the students at the pub. If you'd like to know more about Cortex Club, including some of our past speakers, you can head to our website, cortexclub.com. Before we jump into it, I'd like to just ask the following. If you like what we're doing here, please subscribe or like this episode or leave a comment. If you love the show, tell us what you love about it. And if it isn't working for you, then let us know what you really didn't like about it. I'm here with Sam and Paula, who've just had a really interesting conversation with Holly Bridge, also from Oxford University. Why don't you guys just introduce yourselves and tell me who Holly Bridge is? Uh, I am Samuel. I am also a PhD student here in Oxford, and I study the auditory system. And I'm Paula. I'm a first-year PhD student also at Oxford, and I'm interested in decision-making. And you guys had a really interesting conversation with Holly Bridge. Why don't you tell me a little bit about who she is? Yeah, so for me, I, I've known Holly for a couple of years now, and at first I just knew her as a scientist, and it was really nice to sort of get to know her a little bit better as a, as a person as well, have a really nice conversation here over lunch. I mean, she's just an amazing person because, you know, she's done really solid science for many, many years, uh, but then she also is a football coach, I think, uh, down in, in Brighton, I, if, I, if I remember correctly. And, you know, one of the things she told us as students when we were asking her what her advice was to us is to you know, hold on to activities outside of just your lab work or outside of just your science. So I thought, I thought that was really cool of her. Yeah, and I think it's a really important message, and I don't think that's something that a lot of scientists do or even think about. So, she, so um, as I understand it, she also has some projects that she runs with primary schools to get uh, children involved in the, the kind of science that she does, which uh, I think is very interesting and very important work for scientists to be doing. In terms of her science, what research is she doing? What's she interested in? So she studies uh, the visual system uh, in general, and she, use, she uses uh, advanced imaging methods for that, mostly using MRI. And so she has a couple of different lines of research we, which you can hear, hear about in the conversation. Uh, one of the things I found most interesting is the way that she uses both healthy subjects and different patient groups to learn something about the visual system. Yeah, so what I find really cool about her work is that her approach is essentially to study different type of types of visual impairment that occur at different stages in the visual system, so at different levels. But it not only teaches us something about the visual system, it can also help us develop treatments for these specific people that are suffering from these visual impairments. 
Well, um, I think let's let's jump into it. And here's the conversation with Holly Bridge. So let's start by talking a little bit about um, how you got to where you are now. So did you always want to be a scientist? <laughs> That's a very good question. So as a child, I was very interested in how things worked, but I don't think I had a very good idea about what I wanted to do. Um, I guess I considered medicine because as a, as a child, in a, my, so my dad was actually an economist, uh, so I didn't have very much exposure to science at home, although my mum my liked to do science experiments with us. I just remember, I, I can't tell many people familiar about this, but I hated lots of the physics experiments. I love theoretical physics, but I hated doing experiments. Mm. So it's slightly ironic that I've ended up as a kind of experimental scientist. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I definitely, I definitely, I, I very much liked maths, but I'd, I'd worked out by the time I got to sort of 16 that although I, I probably liked maths because I was quite good at it, and mm. that at some point I was going to get to a point where I couldn't do it anymore, and then it would probably be less fun. Mm. Um, so uh, I took it, so sort of 16 to 18, I decided that I wasn't going to be a full-on scientist. So I, I, I did sort of maths, physics, and then French as my subjects. So I was, I was not, you know, no, ironically, no chemistry, no biology. Mm. Um, and then so... So when it came to applying for university, I actually had not much idea what I wanted to do, although I did become interested in psychology um, from kind of extracurricular activities that were offered to us between 16 and 18. And then, so what happened next was that, um, so I come from, from Stoke-on-Trent, which doesn't have very big, uh, or it didn't have a high stay-on rate beyond 18, or, or even 16 in those days, but you can't <laughs> leave at 16 anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So someone mentioned to me, uh, what about applying to Oxford? And I thought, oh, all right. And they handed me, they handed me a prospectus, which I then read through and thought, oh, looks, looks fancy. Like, looks, <laughs> looks fancy, but also they've got a course that sounds really interesting, um, which happened to be their old psychology, physiology and philosophy course. Mm. And of course, which was nothing like what I was studying. But mm. I thought, oh, yeah, why not? Mm. So then I looked at all the other universities and thought, oh, maybe I'll maybe I'll try psychology and physiology in those as well. And so I put in my applications, and they they all rejected me from that course because I didn't have biology, except Oxford, which didn't have a requirement for that. So they did. To be fair, they did offer me straight psychology, and then yeah. So then I got an offer from Oxford and ended up coming here as an undergraduate. So that's kind of how I got into um, the area that I'm into. But, I mean, it's interesting. Lots of people say, were you interested in science as a child? Um, and I think I was just, I was kind of interested in everything. Um, so, I, yeah, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't a calling throughout my childhood. It doesn't hurt in neuroscience to have broad interests, I think, uh, in thinking creatively about the questions we should be asking. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Yeah, definitely that, that broad, a broad background is beneficial, partly because, I mean, neuroscience is so massive. Mm. Even in, in imaging, you know, I now, I now do chemistry. I haven't done chemistry since I was about 14. <laughs> but, you know, where there's aspects where you need, you, know, you need chemistry, you need biology, you need physics, but you also need kind of, you know, there's also things now, there's sort of social neuroscience where actually, 
you know, you need to know much more about qualitative skills um, that you wouldn't cover in sciences. So yeah, I think I, I agree. Yeah, that broad, that broad background is really useful. So how did you then become interested in the visual system? Partly through kind of cheekiness. Um, so my, my tutor in Oxford, um, so he, he studied psychophysics of the visual system. So Brian Rogers, who's an emeritus professor here now, I knew that he had um, a collaborator in Toronto and my, so my mum's Canadian and I had cousins in Toronto. So I thought that it would be very nice to go and spend a summer in Toronto working. So Catch two birds with one stone, right? Exactly, (laughs) yeah. So when when it came to choosing a project, um, so I asked him whether he thought it would be possible for me to go to his collaborator and do my project there instead of instead of doing it in Oxford, and I, I was really fortunate. They were they were great. They essentially set up a project for me to do over the course of the summer uh, following my second year. So I spent um, about eight weeks in Toronto, and the um, so Ian Howard, who is a professor in Toronto, he he got me this house on the campus, which was. The most amazing place that I ever lived in. So it has like a two-bedroom house with air conditioning, which is quite important in the summer in Toronto. Um, so yeah, I got to basically live as a kind of proper researcher, going in. And, you know, even as an undergraduate, I was living really like a like a postdoc. I'm not sure I lived anywhere that nice again for a long time. <laughs> so yeah, so so I started working. So that was all working in the visual system. So psychophysics of the visual system. So I did that, um, and I actually did it the following summer as well. So I went back and worked there again. And actually, so then I had a bit of a, a pause. So after finishing my undergraduate, where I had specialised in the visual system, I then went up to Edinburgh, where I worked with Richard Morris of the Morris Water Maze. So there I switched to the hippocampus. But in fact, one of the, one of the things I did there was we wanted to, so we were looking at the effects of inactivation of the hippocampus. So idea being you train these rats to swim around the water maze, and if you inactivate the hippocampus, then they can't remember where they need to go. But one possibility is that actually they just can't see as well. Mm. So my, my sort of interest in the visual system came back because we set up a task. We got them to swim to a target that was defined by a specific visual stimulus, and we can use that to check that they could discriminate between the two visual stimuli. Mm. So yeah, even, even then I had a bit of visual system. And then at the end of that um, MSc, I actually decided to come back here and uh, started a DPhil that was um, back in the visual system. Cortex Trust is made possible by donations from the Centre for Neural Circuits and Behaviour at Oxford University. For more information, go to cncb.ox.ac.uk. We're also supported by the Medical Research Council Brain Dynamics Unit. Check out mrcbdnu.ox.ac.uk for more information. Cortex Club is supported by the Department of Physiology, Anatomy and Genetics at Oxford University. I think at this point, maybe it would be nice to just have a quick overview of what this visual system actually is. Uh, just for those who aren't too familiar with it, at which stages do you study the visual system and what makes what makes cortex special there uh, as opposed to earlier stages of processing? Right. So obviously when we think about vision, what we're thinking about 
most people think about the eyes. Hmm. Um, and at the back of the eye, we've got the retina. Mm-hmm. And the retina is where essentially the only photosensitive steps of the visual system are located. The So we've got the cones, which will deal with our very detailed vision. And their job is to capture photons from the environment and change those photons into electrical signals. Obviously, if you don't have any of those photoreceptors, you're not going to be able to see. So that's in anophthalmia, where we've got no retina. There is no method of taking um, those photons and changing them into electricity that can be processed by the brain. Mm -hmm. So from from the the retina, that information uh, that's now in electrical form is taken back along what we call the optic nerve. So all the output from the retina goes along the optic nerve um, into the middle of the brain. As it comes from each eye, the first um, sort of stage of processing is when it gets to the optic chiasm. So the optic chiasm um, is sort of at the front of the brain, and what happens is that we sort of get a reconfiguration of the information. If we think about the brain in general, the sort of right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. And what we're going to need to do is set up a similar sort of organisation for the visual system. Mm-hmm. And the way that that's done is not to take one eye and cross that information to the other side of the brain. But rather, what we want is one side of the world is represented on one side of the brain. Mm-hmm. So at the optic chiasm, essentially, we reorganise the information so that um, information from the right side of the spa- of space goes over to, and is processed by the left side of the brain. Um, so once we've done that, the information pro- is projected to an area called the lateral geniculate nucleus, which is um, the nucleus of the thalamus. So Almost all sensory information, after it's been processed um, by either the ear or the eye or the nose or the mouth, um, uh, gets it projects into the thalamus, um, and then that projects out onto the cortex. Mm-hmm. So in the case of the visual system, the information comes into this lateral geniculate nucleus, and then it's projected round to the back of the brain to the primary visual cortex. Now. Up until that stage, the processing is is quite basic. So essentially, we're, we're sending light information back to the primary visual cortex. The difference in the cortex is that um, the processing gets much more complex and much more specialised. So I talked about emotion area, so this area MT. Um, so if we if we look at the responses of the neurons there, they will respond a lot more to certain directions of motion than other directions of motion, um, and. By having that sort of specialisation, it means that we can actually process the, the vast majority of visual information that we have. So if you think about what's in your image, um, you've got colour, you've got edges, um, you've got motion, um, and all of, these, all of this information has to somehow be integrated mm-hmm. and essentially reconstructed by the brain, because mm-hmm. all the information that comes from the eye is essentially points of light. Mm-hmm. So we take points of light and in the cortex, we reconstruct this image in order for us to be able to recognise people and to be able to read all these things that we use our visual system for. And that's why so much of our um, cortex, so sort of a third to a half, is used for processing visual information. Are there exceptions to this? Are there ways in which if, let's say, all of visual cortex is missing, there's still some information going to other areas than this primary visual cortex in humans or in other animals? So that's, that's an interesting question. So. I think probably the closest the pl- closest we've got to that um, in humans are um, hemispherectomy patients. So this is where um, you take out uh, one one of the 
um, cerebral hemisphere, so one half of the brain. Um, and you do that to um, stop epilepsy spreading between the two hemispheres. So in fact, by doing that, you can massively improve quality of life, even though they're now missing one hemisphere. And what, what you find is that um, because some of those subcortical areas like the, the lateral geniculate nucleus, or there's also another route that goes via uh, the superior colliculus, so people can still orient, they will move their vision to um, things that might be moving past. So you, essentially you get attention to visual information, but what they can't do without the cortex is you cannot get this rich sort of view of the world. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for that sort of kind of conscious understanding of what our, our world looks like, you definitely need the cortex. Right, so what would you say the general themes are now in your lab? The main technique that we use is MRI, so magnetic resonance imaging. Um, there are really three main streams that um, we work on. So the first one is one that I've had all the way through from when I was an undergraduate, which is binocular vision. Mm-hmm. So even my undergraduate project was looking at how we combine information from the two eyes to give us our perceptive depth. That's been sort of modified through my career since undergraduate. Uh, so I've gone from using psychophysical approaches um, now through to imaging. And so now we're looking at, you know, how do the different areas respond to the information that comes in from the two eyes and we're also starting to look at people with amblyopia they don't really have binocular depth perception from having the two eyes so they've had a lazy eye as a child and because of that they haven't developed the brain cells that can give you this binocular vision so we're now looking in their brains and seeing um, how their brains might differ from people who do have binocular vision and the reason for understanding that is that there are now sort of training regimes even in adults, that may well improve um, your binocular vision. Um, mm. So, you know, uh, over the sort of past 20 years, we now know that although we thought the visual system was essentially fixed from about age 8, 9, 10, now even in adulthood you can improve visual perception due to, due to training. Mm. Um, so, that's, so that's one area. Um, another area is looking at what happens if you don't have any input to the visual system. Mm. So we've since, ooh, it's probably about 15 years now, maybe not that long, 10 years, um, we've, we've um, been working with a group of people who were born without eyes, so they were anophthalmic. So during development their eyes didn't develop. And the question then is, you know, you've got a the human brain, probably about a third to a half of it is involved in visual function. So the question is, if you don't have any input to that, those visual brain areas, what what happens to those areas? Do they stop working? Do they change to another function? Um, so over the course of um, a number of experiments, what we've worked out is that um, in those people, the visual system generally responds to auditory information, but we can also then start looking at how how is the information processed differently depending on which brain area you're in. So. For example, in the visual system, you've got areas, so there's an area known as MT, which we know is specialised for motion. And if we look in these people with anophthalmia, that seems to have um, a representation of different tones. Mm. Um, So that that suggests that um, it's specialised for low-level information that's coming in, where things are ordered according to the frequency of information. Mm. In contrast, there's a nearby area um, called the lateral occipital cortex, which in people who can see is involved in processing object information, and in people who can't see, who are anophthalmic, um, in them, it's involved in processing language information. Mm. So we see, just like we get specialization in the brain and in the visual system, you see a similar sort of specialization 
um, when you don't have input to the visual system, so mm -hmm. in anophthalmia. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last uh, area, major area, is looking at what happens to the visual system after someone has a stroke that damages part of the visual system. It's interesting with stroke because lots of people don't realise that you can actually lose your vision following a stroke. Mm. So everyone is used to the motor problems language and the fact you can have language problems, exactly. Um, but of course, um, depending on which blood vessels are affected, any different part of the brain can be damaged by the lack of oxygen. So, um, and one of the most common places to have a stroke that affects your vision is the primary visual cortex. Mm. And because the primary visual cortex is where all the information coming from the eyes collects together to sort of project out to different areas of the brain, if you lose that, then you become unable to see on one side of the world. Um, and of course that interferes with your independence and you're not allowed to drive. So there's major consequences of being able to see, or being able to not see on that side of space. Mm. Um, and I think it's also a hidden disability. So um, people will be walking around and they might bump into things and no one knows that they're bumping into things because actually they're blind on one side mm. of the world. Um, so what we're, what we've been doing is looking at, so there's something known as blind sight, which is this idea that even though you can't detect stimuli in that part of the visual field, um, if you're made to guess about something that's presented there, you actually get it right at a higher probability than chance. Mm -hmm. So that suggests that there's some information that comes into your visual system even when that primary visual cortex is damaged. Mm -hmm. So we've been looking at those pathways that might underlie those abilities um, and uh, we will hopefully in the next few months set up a trial um, to look at rehabilitation. So if we stimulate those pathways over and over again, can we actually improve the vision of these people who've suffered these strokes? So, yeah, you've talked a lot about um, different types of visual impairments. What would you say the most important things are that we can learn from studying these people? So, I mean, depending on which group it is. So, I mean, what are the, um, so the work in anophthalmia is quite interesting because that really says to what extent is our brain development predetermined or to what extent does it depend right. on our experience. Um, and the reason that anophthalmia is so important is because they, because their eyes never develop, um, you never get any input to the visual system. So if you, so the majority of um, visual loss happens after birth. So either um, the, the visual cells are normal and then degenerate, which happens in lots of retinal disease, or um, other causes of things like retinopathy and prematurity. So the, the, the eyes are completely normal, but then get damaged after birth. So, and even if the eyes are intact in utero, we know that there's things called retinal waves, which stimulate the visual system to become visual. So if you don't have any eyes, you get none of that hmm. information. It's um, a very pure deficit. Exactly. So it's, so it's a pure deficit. And what that can say is, so can even those most basic parts of our brain, can they change their function? Hmm. So we know that the cortex, sort of the higher levels of the brain, are very plastic. We know that they can, be, they can adapt. What we know much less about is how much those very basic, those sort of evolutionary early areas, like the subcortical areas, such as the lateral geniculus, the superior colliculus in the visual system, how much can they um, change their function if they're never stimulated uh, by the retina? Hmm. Right, so very practically, what, how do you study the visual system? What, what does one of your experiments look like? Using the, the MRI scanner, there are really um, four, four approaches that we use. So first of all, 
um, which is the most basic, is to look at the structure. So the MRI allows us to see different types of tissues. So the, the grey matter, which is the cell bodies, the white matter, which is the connections uh, between the cells, um, and then any fluid. Um, because, you know, if you've had a stroke, your brain, you will see different amounts of those tissues. And you can see if any of those tissues, any of the tissue is damaged. So we can do things like, so for example, if someone's had a stroke, does the amount of damage correspond to the, the amount of loss that they've got in the visual field? And actually, a lot of the time, it doesn't. So you could have a very small stroke that affects a critical area mm-hmm. um, and has, is devastating to your vision, and yet you could have a different stroke that um, it has you know, large consequences in terms of the amount of brains that, that's damaged, and yet there seem to be fewer consequences. So that's quite, that's quite an interesting way of looking at things. Um, so we look at structure. Um, we obviously look at function, so using functional MRI, we're essentially looking at um, the blood flow to different areas of the visual cortex. So when an area becomes active, so if we presented you with moving dots, that area MT is going to become active. And what we do is we compare those moving dots to, say, stationary dots, and we can see um, whether the activity in that area is normal or if it's abnormal. Um, so what we might do, for example, in people who've had a stroke, is we stimulate the two sides of the world, and one side they can't really see, the other side they can see. And how does the activity in areas that are not affected by the stroke, how does that differ? And interesting, what you find is that even though you don't have the sort of primary visual cortex uh, working because it's been damaged, if you look at the response of this area MT on that side, you may still find activity which shows us that actually information does get through to the rest of the visual brain. So that's the way we might use um, the fMRI to understand what's going on. Then we've got um, being able to look at the pathways. So we can see kind of networks of activity, uh, networks of areas that work together. Um, so there is the technique called diffusion tensor imaging. And what that allows us to do is look at how water moves around in the brain. So obviously if, if you've got water molecules that are within a fibre tract, um, it's much easier for the water to move along that tract than across the tract because there are lots of barriers to stop it moving across the tract. So we can actually look and map out the pathways between different areas. And of course, if we're interested in which parts of the visual system are still intact, if we can show that the pathways are intact between certain areas, um, then that will suggest um, which bits of the brain are underlying any, any sort of residual vision that you might have or any blind sight. Um, so often what you'll see in terms of the stroke work is that the pathway between that lateral geniculate nucleus and primary visual cortex is damaged, but the pathways between the lateral geniculate nucleus and other pathways may well be intact. Hmm. Um, and then finally, what we're um, doing a lot more now um, is looking at magnetic resonance spectroscopy, which allows us to measure the quantities or the concentrations of trans- neurotransmitters in the brain. So we're now looking at brain chemistry Um, and particularly um, GABA, which is an inhibitory transmitter. So in terms of the work on binocular vision, what we think is as the information to cells comes in from the two eyes, basically um, they sort of inhibit each other. So you get this balance of these inhibitory transmitters. Now, if we've got people who've got abnormal binocular vision, we think that that relationship is going to be disrupted. So in the future, we'll look to see, is there anything we can do to those, the concentration of GABA which can actually improve the balance from the two eyes? And that, that, that may well improve people's binocular vision. Very practically, how do you find these people with, with 
visual impairments like this? I imagine some of this might be quite rare. The people, the people with anophthalmia, so that's incredibly rare. Mm. Um, so the type of anophthalmia that they had is that they are, um, other than their anophthalmia, they are perfectly healthy. The reason that's unusual is because obviously the eyes develop very early in development. So if things go wrong at that stage, often you get lots of other issues with brain development. Mm. But in these people, it's very much isolated. Lots of the people that we work with, we get through ophthalmologists who specialise in these conditions. Um, so I've actually been really fortunate throughout my career because I'm the main person who does vision at the imaging centre lots of people are interested in seeing kind of what goes on so I was contacted by someone who had this group of people that they'd been investigating for genetic purposes and were interested in getting more information about what went on in their brain so that that's one route um interesting for the people who've had a stroke so people often get in touch with me and say I've seen that you work on hemianopia which is the, the loss of vision on one side of the world um, and I'm interested in what you can do for me because it's one of the conditions where you, if you have a stroke that affects the visual system, essentially you're more or less discharged from um, the hospital care. You get, you'll get some follow-up to, to see how you've changed, but there's no sort of treatment available, there's no rehabilitation. So people are often very motivated hmm. to seek out um, research that's going on. So that, yeah, so most of the people that we're studying at the moment have actually come to me um, to request information about the studies that we're doing. So you, you've touched on this now a little bit, but I was wondering when you when you work with patients and you design research projects around a particular clinical group, uh, where do you place yourself? Because I think of you as a basic scientist, um, and in that yep. sense, perhaps you are fortunate enough to work with these patients in order to understand the visual system better, but at the same time, studying the visual system might help us treat these patients. So how, where do you find yourself and is there any tension there for you? That's a very interesting question. I haven't really thought about it in those terms. Mm. I agree that I also consider myself very much a basic scientist. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in, you know, why, why does this happen? What are the consequences? But I guess what, so with the, with the anophthalmia, it's interesting because, because that's how these people are born. You know, that is their normality. Right, so for them, and it's, it's interesting because we were asking about where do I place myself, because I chat to them and I say, so what, what questions do you think would be interesting for us to, mm. to ask? So, that, so from that point of view, that is very much basic science, you know, how does the brain develop? How do we, how do we get to where we are? With the hemianopia, it is, I agree, it's slightly different. So I've spent the past sort of decade looking at all the potential pathways that could underlie these abilities, and that is very much the sort of basic science. And I think... With that, I see myself at this kind of intersection because what I want to do is design rehabilitation that uses the knowledge that we have of those different pathways. So if we find a specific pathway that we think is likely to underlie residual ability, can we then stimulate that over and over again to see if we can strengthen it and improve performance? So although it is sort of translational in that it could be applied to patients who have this condition to me it's very much like can we actually manipulate those pathways of the brain but I think because I interact so closely with the people who've had hemianopia I think that that does increase the motivation to actually you know can I I actually do something to help them because there aren't that many options for them at the moment Mm -hmm. so yeah I don't really have any kind of issues with it I don't see them as incompatible Mm. Um, I see it as really using my basic science knowledge to actually then be quite useful. So how close are we actually to developing those kinds of treatments that you're talking about? 
I think I think in a sense the kind of the the ideas for the rehabilitation are fairly they're fairly advanced, but what we don't know is how well how well they work. Mm-hmm. So that hasn't been done. Um, we've got a collaborator in um, at Rochester, New York, who I've been to visit. So they have done they have done some testing. But what we really want to do is actually get in and try rehabilitation immediately after the stroke because lots of information from the motor system suggests that actually your brain is most plastic immediately after a stroke. So if you can start the rehabilitation immediately, you stand a much better chance of um, a better outcome. But that that's much more difficult. So we have lots of people who've had strokes a while ago who will get in touch and say, I want to take part. But to get people you know, within one to two weeks of having a stroke is much more difficult and requires a very sort of joined up um, approach between clinicians and researchers, and that, that can be quite tricky. So going back to the, um, the basic questions, which obviously the questions, the kinds of questions you're asking about the structure of the visual system, some people not working with humans, with human patients are asking as well. I can imagine that a number of Corticast listeners, you know, have never worked with MRI or have never worked with uh, with humans and might think that, you know, these questions are better answered in using more invasive methods in, um, in animal models. So what for you makes studying humans special and why, what, is there any, any communication you might have or any literature that you'd like to read coming outside of this field? The, the human work, I think with the visual system, because the, um, the sort of design of the visual system hmm. differs significantly across species. It's quite difficult to um, look at the processing of visual information anything that's lower than a primate. I mean, you can look at specific retinal function, for example, but actually the cortical function is very, very different in rodents compared to primates. And of course, doing this work in primates presents its own challenges. And even, even in primates, actually, there is now a lot more imaging than than previously. So then, why not just do it with humans? At that point, yeah. yeah. I mean, you do you get much you get nicer images because the animals stay in the scanner for much longer. But you know, the the gains are not that big. Obviously, you know, you being able to record the actual neurons um, and the techniques for doing that are quite phenomenal now. Mm. So, I mean, I think as with everything, it's kind of complementary. So there's information that we could get from primate studies that would give us. Um, much more detailed information about what's going on than we would see in humans. But at the same time, patients who've had strokes, you know, they're so different. Mm. So in a sense, what we want to do is look at the variability in the reporting of stimuli in human patients. If you look in the... So there are older studies that have looked at primates, so the cat monkey, where they've taken out the primary visual cortex, and actually they cope much better than human participants, so they retain more visual processing um, and can get around and reach for things, uh, which seems to be a, a much higher level of visual function than you see in um, human patients with the same damage. Mm. So I think for th- for the stroke work, I, I think you know the the human work is is by far the sort of most most important. For anophthalmia, I think it's slightly it, it maybe a different question. So there is there is some great work um, on the macaque from. Um, one of the labs um, in France, um, and they they can actually do very detailed studies of what happens to the structure of the brain if you don't have any visual input from the eyes. So so that that's very useful for us. Um, and there's also um, a genetically anophthalmic mouse model, which we take 
you know, input from because um, what you see there is when they can actually go and record from neurons, um, the ones in the visual areas also become auditory. So we can look in the in the sort of those subcortical areas um, and see that they change in the anophthalmic mouse. But if you um, if you make the animal blind after birth, you don't get that. Mm. So there are, there are there are definitely I mean there are definitely advantages of doing the animal experiments, um, and I think you know being able to put those together gives us a much better idea of of how the visual system works. Yeah, I guess if there's some underlying rules of um, cross model plasticity and you know development of the visual system. It's a lot more interesting to find rules that apply across exactly. species and models. Yeah. I guess in a way, similarly, recently there's sort of been a drive to um, to use neural networks to understand vision instead. What's your view on whether we can learn from neural networks about the visual system, and if we can, to what extent? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. So there, there are they have started in these networks where. Um, I mean, actually, to be honest, I've looked at them much more where they've used the imaging and they've shown people videos and then yeah. you know, reading reading back and can they do they know what decoding. people are looking at the sort of decoding methods? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've if you've kind of come if you've come through as we, we discussed earlier, the neuroscience is so broad, and I think that's the beauty of the visual. Everyone looks at the visual system first. So actually, being able to apply all these different techniques to the visual system, I you know, there is no question that it's going to be beneficial by having multiple approaches. I mean, the neural, the neural network, we don't, we don't do any works on neural networks, but they will, they will, they will become um, useful. And in fact, I mean, the development of the sort of models from when I was an undergraduate and learning about what was going on to now, I mean, it is absolutely phenomenal. Um, the work from Andrew Zisman, where they can, you know, they've got uh, computers that can recognize different types of flower. I mean, you know, it is amazing that the kind of learning and going back to look and say, you know, how do, how do they do that? Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many, there are so many questions and, you know, with the MRI, we get, we look at things on such a macro scale that obviously it's very hard for us to elucidate those, the actual processing that's going on. So that's, you know, away from my own work, being able to go in and actually read out what neurons are doing and try to work out how they all work together as a network. You know, there's there's a lot of work still be, to be done. Speaking of methodological development, I guess since the time you started in Oxford, uh, you've kind of witnessed firsthand the development of MRI methods, and I guess it's still just a, a very big magnet that you're being put into. But there's so much more informed maths and physics behind it now to be able to do all these methods you're talking about. So, is this something you felt as a junior scientist you were prepared to be part of? And is it something you're you're excited to see develop forward? I slightly cheated because I came in at a little bit later. So when I came when I came into MRI, lots of the techniques were already starting to be established. Um, so one of the main techniques that we would use in vision is this retinotopic mapping, where you, which allows you to identify different visual areas. That was already established when I went into vision. So I went in, I went to train in Stanford to learn how to do those methods, and brought those back to Oxford. So I think I've actually benefited massively from having experts kind of sitting around me. So okay. you know, I'm not. I've I've always been very enthusiastic about taking things on fairly early. So you know, the diffusion once those original sort of once the original method has been established, I was like, oh yeah, that looks yeah. Let's try that in the visual system. And I think the visual system has always been used as a model. So because I was the person who did vision 
people would often come to me and say, can we, can we have a look at this? So, I mean, one, one example is the first project that I did in MRI was with Stuart Clare, who's a physicist that I still work with, and that was looking um, at very high-resolution anatomical imaging to see if we could pick out the strive genari, which marks out the primary visual cortex. Wow. So we took, we took that and we put that together with the retinotropic mapping so we could get a functional definition of the primary visual cortex, and we could see the, the actual kind of structure of the cortex and put those together and see how well they match. So yeah, I'm very enthusiastic with that, um, those collaborations with people who have different expertise from yourself. And I think being in a somewhere like the what is now the wind that was a film representer and having physicists and analysis people that I could work with very closely um, is really beneficial. So that sort of collaborative interdisciplinary working. So do you feel that has changed over the years, sort of Oxford neuroscience in general? How's the, how's the community <laughs> developed? Um, no need to gossip. <laughs> I guess the first thing would be in size. You know, when I when I started out, um, you know, as an undergraduate, there were hardly any neuroscience degrees even. Whereas now, you know, neuroscience is everywhere. So I think the um, just the range of techniques that you can use. Uh, you know, I mean, I thought, talked to Simon before about your know, two photon imaging was incomprehensible if you go back twenty years. You know, when I was learning as an undergraduate, um, the fact that you could look at things on that scale was really unheard of. You're lucky if you got a kind of electron microscope. It, the neuroscience community has just grown so much and you know it's great to see all these the new techniques. And it, I think you kind of get a little bit set in your own technique and then you look around and think, wow, I can't believe they can do that. Mm. And I imagine you know I imagine that's that's true from all different areas of neuroscience that you look and say, wow, there's there's some amazing things that people are doing. Something this might be a bit of a cheeky question coming from a personal interest and sometimes frustration, but neuroscience is so driven by methods because there's there's techniques that keep popping up that we feel we should be using because we want to get at neuroprocessing at multiple stages and uh, multiple levels. How much do you sometimes feel that 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 should be like that or perhaps more driven by theory? Is there is there a tension there for you? Do you think methods on themselves are always going to drive science forward? I think the answer to your question is probably yes. Um, as to whether that is the right way to go, I think you know that is clearly not. So I think there's probably there's probably room for both. Um, so there will be people who are developing methods, and some of those methods may not go anywhere. But the people who are very good at developing methods will be collaborating with people who have questions. So I think so. I kind of see my role as finding the best method to address the question that I've got. Mm. Um, so for example, like one of them would be the spec this question about spectroscopy. So what are the interesting things that we can ask about spectroscopy? Um, so I actually started using that properly when someone came to me and said, look, we found out that if you patch one of the eyes for two hours, when you take the patch off, you can see much better in that eye than the other eye. Mm. What might be the basis of that? So the question was, is that to do with this kind of inhibition between the two eyes? So then we said, we want to use spectroscopy, and the person, Uzai Mir, who sat at the back of the room, who I'd never met, he, and he was our new specialist in spectroscopy, and he said, I can help you answer that question. So then, then I started working with him. Mm. So, so I think, you know, you're right that the methods, the, method, the methods are massive, but there are lots of people in neuroscience who just want to be able to use them. So I think I think I think that both both of those exist, and hopefully they can exist in harmony and actually for mutual benefit. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's not 
it's not like you had spectroscopy, that's the only thing you were able to do, and you thought, let's start asking questions with it. So you you exactly. had a question, and you found the right method. Right, but, but if you take the, if you look at, look at it from the spectroscopist's point of view, mm -hmm. they've developed that method. And um, they're just begging for it. And they want, and they want yeah, exactly. So, so I think I, certainly in MRI, which is a sort of, you know, microcosm, um, you, you get that sort of, so you, you do have the people who will be developing methods, and then you've got the people who say, oh, that might be useful for me. Mm -hmm. Maybe to round up, um, what is a current project that you're working on that you're most excited about? So at the moment, we, so lots of the work I've been doing has looked at sort of damage to the brain or um, where the eyes haven't developed. The project that we're doing at the moment is actually looking at what happens with inherited retinal diseases. So people who have a genetic um, disposition to say macular degeneration where the cones and the retina will die off with time and this um, so it's called Stargardt disease and it can happen from kind of mid childhood and they start losing function and one of the nice things is that they're now starting to develop gene therapies which can stop the loss of those cones in that case however if you do that obviously as you get the degeneration you may well get changes that occur in the visual parts of the brain so what we're doing at the moment is looking to see what are the consequences of loss of retinal function on the brain. Um, and then the idea is that we will look over time and see how you get changes, or how the changes in the retina affect the brain. And the question then will be, if you can give people gene therapy, um, can you get, if you've lost anything in your brain function, can you get that back through restoration of retinal function or is there something that more that you need to do to make the brain process that information better? So that will give us a chance to actually sort of feed into these types of gene therapies that have been developed and say, actually, you should do it earlier, or you need to also provide rehabilitation training to make sure the brain can use its new input. Hmm. Sounds awesome. Sounds really cool. Sounds like a great way to bring everything together. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's one more thing that we've asked previous guests as well. Um, you know, you've you teach at New College, you've had a lot of PhD students under you. Uh, is there something looking forward to perhaps some people listening that are, are students themselves? Is there something that you're excited to see happening in the next generation of scientists or a piece of advice that you'd like to give to any, any current PhD student or neuroscience student? So I think um, one piece of advice would be, you know, science Science can be really difficult, right? There's going to be times when you're trying to achieve something and you just can't make it work, or, you know, your papers get rejected or you can't get grant funding. One of the things that I've done alongside the actual research is to have something else that I like to do. And for me, that's um, public engagement and to go out and do things either in schools or, I mean, it's mainly in schools, but also, you know, in museums and actually to ensure that you can get um, sort of recognition, but also the sort of pleasure of doing something that always works and that people appreciate. Having something else that you like to do. It could also be teaching, but things like that where you interact with people, um, just because much of what we do is, um, sort of the feedback that we get is often negative as a scientist, um, because, you know, 
you're more likely to have a grant rejected than to have it to have it funded. It's a lot of intrinsically critical and skeptical people as well, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, that's that's why we do what we do. Mm. But if you've got something else where you can kind of get your enjoyment and you know people are delighted to go and participate in activities, then you have something else that can actually make you feel good, even mm. where you're having those sort of lows in your academic career. So yeah, find something else that you like to do alongside it. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Holly. <laughs> Thank you. So that's it for this week's episode. I'd like to again thank Dr. Holly Bridge for sitting down to talk to us. I hope you've all enjoyed it as much as we did. If you've liked this week's episode, why not subscribe to the podcast? We also really want to hear your thoughts and feedback, so be sure to leave a comment down below. Your hosts this week were Samuel Picard, Paula Condes, and myself, Alex von Klemperer. Our theme music is by Eves Blue. If you'd like to know more about the Cortex Club, then check it out at cortexclub.com. Until next time, goodbye for now. Thank you.